This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme. Now, the family of murdered Irish school teacher Ashleen Murphy has said she was subjected to incomprehensible violence by a vicious monster. It came after Joseph Pushka was found guilty of murdering Ashleen Murphy. Ashleen was killed while out jogging on a canal path in Tullamore in County Offaly. It was the afternoon of the 12th of January last year. Andrew Louth was at the Central Criminal Court in Dublin for the trial and he once again joins me. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, You're very welcome to the programme. Now, it didn't take that long for the jury to return, I believe, a unanimous verdict. That's right, Patricia. Um, The jury took just about two hours to deliberate and return a verdict of uh, guilty, unanimously, uh, for Joseph Pushka to murdered Ashing Murphy. And just to kind of put that into context, that is a very short uh, deliberation time. Um, because you, if you think about it, they were asked by Mr. Justice Tony Hunt to consider the evidence, to take their time, and to come to a unanimous agreement. And with this, then, it began... It, um, it, it, it kind of where I wanted to speculate on what the jury would have spoken about. It tells you just how long it tells you how long they needed to consider the overwhelming evidence as put to them by Ms. Amory Lawler, the prosecuting barrister um, in this case against Joseph Pushka. And just to just to draw a comparison from another huge case uh, way back when, Graham Dwyer, who uh, murdered Elaine O'Hara, the jury there took seven and a half hours to deliberate on the evidence. Here they took two, and Mr. Justice Tony Hunt. Um, spoke to the jury after delivering the verdict and he said that um, he was glad that uh, they didn't waste any more of their valuable time on what he described as Pushka's nonsense. And it was nonsense, Patricia. The evidence was overwhelming. He admitted to doing it. And I'm surprised from the outset that he didn't plea guilty. Yeah, I mean, there was so much evidence, uh, Andrew, uh, pre- uh, that was presented. And as you say, Pushka's original uh, admission, 
I mean, I, I'm assuming it was, it's widely accepted that the jury came back with the correct verdict yesterday. They, it couldn't have been anything else. Yes, it it is uh, very much accepted that this is um, the case. Um, now, without wanting to speak for anyone else or whatever the case may be, but certainly the conversations I've had, um, it seemed very clear from very early on. You know, just to go back to what we said before, Patricia, about what the state's case was. Ms. Anne-Marie Lawler, in her opening statement, said that it was the state's case that Joseph Pushka confessed to the murder of Ashling Murphy, on the um, which happened on January 12th, 2022. And he did so at a level of detail which only that person would have known. That was what Anne-Marie Lawler told the jury in her opening address on Tuesday, three weeks ago. And... He did, he did confess to it in hospital. Um, and the level of detail, which I, I know, you're, you're, I know uh, you're concerned about young years, so I won't say that specifically, but we know how she died. And that level of detail was not in the public domain when he made a reference to how he killed Ashing Murphy to Detective Garda Fergus Hogan while a patient in St. James's Hospital two days after Ashing was murdered. Yeah, and then he decided to change his story completely. And he came up with this bizarre story of a man wearing a mask. A COVID-compliant attacker, oh. as uh, Ms. Amory Lawler, closing uh, address to the jury. And it's one thing that struck me with this, um, not just his testimony in the dock, but his um, an original story that he was stabbed in Blanchardstown. Both stories tried to paint him as a victim of an attack. And it was quite poignant yesterday, um, Patricia, that uh, Kathy Murphy, Ashing's mother, had a framed photograph of Ashing in her arms. And it was a beautiful photograph. It was a photograph. We've all seen the photographs of Ashing that have been out in the public domain uh, since her awful killing 22 months ago. But this photograph I had never seen before mm, mm. and straight away, I'm sure you've probably seen the photograph I have, yeah. the, I, the I, Irish Examiner Yeah, today. and I saw her last that night on the news. Smile. Yeah, I saw her, I saw her mum holding the picture. Yeah, it was just, and, and yeah. what also struck me when I watched them on the news last night is um, her sister, they were, they're, they're so, they were so alike uh, as well in, in looks. Yeah. Um, really, really heartbreaking. Okay, what was Ashleen's family's initial reaction when the guilty verdict was handed down? Well, it goes back to that photograph again. Um, Kathleen Murphy, Ashing's mother, held that aloft when the verdict was handed down. She showed it to the jury. And and before the verdict was given, Tony Hunt, the, ju- uh, the judge, asked for, for quiet in the courtroom. And so when the, it was handed down, there was there was relative silence. You could hear the movements. You could hear the sighs of relief from the Murphy family and friends and uh, those in the public gallery as well. You, I saw Ray and Kathleen, Ashley's parents, embrace. I saw them embrace with their sister, or with uh, Ashing's sister, Amy, brother, Cahill, uh, Ashing's boyfriend, Ryan Casey. And the photograph was held aloft. And when Mr. Justice Tony Hunt spoke to the jury and he sent them on their way, there, they stood up and the Murphy family and friends and the public gallery erupted into a round of applause. And Mr. Wow. Justice Tony Hunt said that he had asked for silence, but then caveated this by saying 
that it was understandable. What, and Joseph Pushka, what was his reaction? It's, it was a bit of a delayed reaction because he had been get he had been uh, he had an interpreter throughout the entire trial, and um, so when everybody realised what had gone down, was uh, we all realised that he was guilty. It seems to take a couple a couple of extra seconds for him to realise the gravity of what happened. He put his head down at one point. He had his head in his hands. He would glance up and back from the jury and then back down pointing towards the ground his family were upset his dad was quite angry and um he had been speaking in slovakian and uh, now it, it should be pointed out none of the pushka family addressed the court or anybody else in the room from what i could see anyway but themselves so it, certainly that was kind of, and there did not it did it did not seem to really the, the gravity of the situation did not really seem to dawn on him until the guilty verdict was returned. And what was his demeanour like over the last uh, three weeks in court? Well, as I said earlier, Patricia, I'm surprised he didn't plead guilty in the first place because of the overwhelming nature of the evidence. Um, there were times where I think he felt that he had. He had a perfect story to provide an alibi and to provide a, a reasonable doubt on the jury's minds. There were times he smirked through proceedings. He seemed very, he was very engaged in the proceedings. He would come out regularly with a folder in his hand uh, containing documents of some sort. He was clearly very engaged when uh, he's listening to the interpreter. There wasn't any sense that he wasn't overly bothered by this trial he seemed very engaged in it but um there was certainly a sense from my mind and i can't speak for any for anybody else that he thought that he had a story that would uh get him away with murder and mr justice tony hunt said yesterday that um the jury he agreed with the verdict that um he was glad the jury didn't waste any more of their time on what was called what he called pushkas nonsense he said that he prevented Josip Pushka from get, or that they prevented Josip Pushka from getting away with murder, and that there was evil in this courtroom. Yeah, I thought that was an incredible statement from uh, Judge Tony Hunt. There is evil in this room, without a doubt, mm. uh, and obviously yeah. everybody in the room agreeing with it. Well, again, I'm not going to speak for everybody else in the room. There, were, some people might say, some people might say that, and um, that isn't the case. But certainly, from was certainly from anybody who listened to the evidence in its entirety and the overwhelming nature of it. And then the fact that he came up with two stories um, first um, when he spoke to Gardy and Crumlin on the 13th of January that he was stabbed in Blanchardstown. And then a second story where he was uh, the victim of an attack from a man wearing a face mask along the Grand Canal and this mysterious man who hadn't been seen before and has never been seen since then went on to attack and kill Ashing Murphy. It just shows that he was trying to paint himself as the victim all along when the woman who was sitting in the middle of in the middle of court 13 in the Criminal Court of Justice, uh, Kathleen Murphy, holding up the photograph of Ashing in the centre of the courtroom when the verdict came in, 
there was the person at the centre of this entire case was Ashling. Yeah, and that's that's what we mustn't uh, forget. And I'm reading in the papers today, um, Andrew, that there was what some papers are saying was a feeble attempt by Pushka to take his own life before he took to the stand. There, there are some reports of that. Yes, I haven't been able to confirm it myself. But what I can say is that um, when uh, a week ago, over a week ago, last Wednesday, uh, Joseph Pushka did not um, appear in court. He had been sick noted by the prison service. And um, what I can say that before that, he had his hair tied. He would before this day, he would have his hair tied back, and what have you. And then the next day, and then it was. Uh, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt, in the absence of the jury, we couldn't report this at the time. What we did report was that there were no proceedings because you know, there was no proceedings. We could we didn't even report Joseph Pushka wasn't there because it wasn't clear. It couldn't be clear that the jury, all of them, had noticed that he wasn't there. So we couldn't be seen to be trying to to influence them in any way. But we reported that there'd be no evidence that something had come up, and yeah, and in the absence of the jury. Um, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt uh, referred to what he said he didn't want to see any more of. And they were self-induced excuses from the accused, um, Joseph Pushka. And this again, this was before he was due to before the prosecution was due to close its case, before he was due to give evidence. And um, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt said that it was up to Joseph Pushka to be present. Otherwise, he'd lose his opportunity to complete the testimony and that they weren't wasting any more time. And on Thursday, when he did reappear, he had no long he no longer had his hair tied back. Okay. That and, I can't say. All right. And then sentencing uh, will take place when? Next week, this day next week. So um in the past, Patricia, you might remember that everything in the case of murder, everything was done all in the one day. Um, there would be a, a verdict, victim impact statement, and then a the a murder will be handed a mandatory life sentence. Um, in recent years, it's kind of been spread out a little bit to allow a family to decide if they want to provide a victim impact statement. They don't have to, and um, it's essent. But there is only one option for Mr. Justice Tony Hunt here, and that is a mandatory life sentence, and that will be handed down to Yosu Pushka on uh, December 17th. Uh, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt didn't actually address Joseph Pushka directly. So um, what you could see next week, um, depending on uh, if he feels, as ne- if, the ju- if Mr. Justice Hunt feels as necessary, you might see him address Joseph Pushka beyond uh, just handing him a mandatory life sentence. I'm not going to speak on behalf of him or what he might be thinking. But um, that is a possibility. And what about the family? Will they be allowed to present victim impact statements? They can if they want. They don't have to. Mr. Justice Tony Hunt, when addressing the jury, made this uh, clear to them yesterday. But uh, Mr. Justice Hunt said that uh, he hoped that the Murphy family would provide a victim impact statement. Um, because uh, you have to remember, Patricia, back when um, Ms. Amory Lawler, the prosecuting barrister, made her opening address to the jury, she made uh, references to Ashling, 23-year-old woman, a primary school teacher, and with her whole life ahead of her. But then she said, and very coldly, and perhaps in, in ne- very necessarily, that they wouldn't be hearing any more, very much more about Ashling, that this was this trial was about Yosef Pushka. And a victim impact statement uh, can, can help uh, the family provide, uh, provide 
who Ashling was to them. Yeah, and I know after the court, um, Ashling's brother Cahill and her boyfriend, I thought, uh, were very bravely uh, addressed uh, the media. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I feel sure they will. They will because it will be an opportunity uh, to he- to hear it from Ashling's side in that her family will get the chance to speak. Listen, Andrew, uh, we appreciate um, your contribution today and indeed over the last number of weeks. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning to you. That is uh, Andrew Louth, who was at the Central Criminal Court in Dublin for the uh, entire trial of Ashley Murphy. And someone says, Patricia, well done to our wonderful Gardaí for bringing Ashley Murphy's killer to face justice. They were outstanding in their detective work. The monster attacked a beautiful, young, awfully woman, having frightened other women beforehand on the same day. It really looked like he was seeking out a victim. No woman would be safe if he remained on our streets and Thankfully, he'll be in jail now for a very, very long time. That said, imprisoning this evil creature won't bring Ashleen back and her family now must face a full life sentence in grief. May lovely, sweet Ashleen rest in uh, peace. And so say all of us. Thank you. That's a, a lovely, lovely text. And while Ashleen Murphy's life was stolen at a very young age. Remember, she was only uh, 23. But her memory, certainly, and her legacy is going to live on because there's various funds and scholarships and bursaries and awards that have been set up in her name. There's the Ashleen Murphy Memorial Fund and that's primary uh, aim is to establish arts and cultural activities because we know she was so into the uh, arts and it's going to be achieved by creating education and musical scholarships, supporting um, the enhancement of facilities and building projects and supporting those who take part in uh, cultural events. They're also hoping through that fund to promote the Irish uh, language. And as well as the fund, there's been scholarship and sporting prizes have been set up in uh, her uh, name. There is, for an example, Kyotas Kyothori Aaron. They've established three scholarships, uh, each worth €2,000 to recognise and remember Ashley Murphy's talent and legacy. And then Mary Immaculata uh, College, the Teacher Training Centre in uh, Limerick and the Irish National Teachers Organisation, they've come together and launched an enhanced scholarship in memory of uh, Ashley. Because remember, it was in, it was only, it's not that long ago, it was only September of 2017 that she started her Bachelor of Education degree in Mary I. She spent four years then training to be a primary school teacher and only graduated. Uh, on the on October of 2021, that was less than three months before she was brutally uh, murdered. The bursary is going to be worth four thousand euro and will be awarded to a first year. Uh, Bachelor of Education degree student for exceptional achievements and talent in the field of traditional Irish music because Ashley loved, absolutely loved and was such a talented Irish uh, 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 player of Irish music. Um, Ashley also attended the Sacred Heart Secondary School in uh, Tullamore, described as being well respected and made many friends there. So the Sacred Heart, the school, will now be awarding a €1,000 bursary in her memory every uh, autumn. While the student council at the school, they've created a stone bench in her honour, which now sits outside of the school. Um, We know that Ashley Murphy had a great love of sports and that's been recognised and remembered by two perpetual uh, trophies, one for athletics 
and one for Camogie. The Athletics one is going to be the Ashley Murphy four mile road race. And then Leinster Camogie, they've established the Ashley Murphy uh, Perpetual Trophy and that'll be now awarded annually to the player of the match in the Junior A Leinster final. And I also read that the Tullamore Men's Shed Group, they've actually installed a bench at the memorial site where Ashleen Murphy was attacked on the banks of the Grand Canal in Tullamore. And you may have seen, it's in a lot of newspapers and you might see it on some of the TV uh, coverage, the benches there that the men's shed put in place. But that spot is constantly marked with flowers and photographs and a little cross uh, remembering Ashleen Murphy. So may, may we never forget what was a really talented, talented young woman. What a great loss she is to her family, to her school and indeed to the entire country. It's people like Ashley Murphy we need more of in this country. And just some of your comments in on the Ashleen Murphy murder and the uh, conviction, the guilty conviction of uh, Joseph Pushka. John says, many commentators were saying yesterday that this particular case, the Ashleen Murphy murder trial, was a watershed moment for women in uh, Ireland but it will only be a watershed moment if Pushka gets life and leaves jail in a coffin. As John feels that a life sentence should mean life as it does in other countries. That would do justice for Ashleen Murphy. John walks around the lock most days. But since Ashley Murphy was murdered last year, John has noticed that women who are out walking on their own uh, will be turning around and looking to make sure that there isn't you know, any men around or any men following. So he said it's put the fear in a lot of men, a lot of women. It's left a mark on the women of uh, Ireland. Thanks for that, John. Norma Imbandon said her her heart went out to Ashley's brother, Colm, and her boyfriend when they spoke outside the court yesterday. She said the grief they were suffering and it clearly showed both in their words and on their faces. Awful what that family has been put through. And Gronje thinks Joseph Pushka should be put on a plane and sent back to Slovakia and never left back in this country again. She feels it's a total waste of time putting him into prison. She reckons at best he'll be released after 10 years with good behaviour. Well, let's wait and see what is the instruction from the judge this day week when he is sentenced. It is a mandatory life, life sentence, but as, as John has pointed out, a life sentence in this country does not mean for the remainder of your life. So let's wait and see what the judge has to say uh, next week. 0818 103 103. And remember yesterday I mentioned about free legal aid and there was a talk that, um, and a suggestion that for free legal aid for repeat offenders, not that they would be turned down for free legal aid, but that they would be made to pay back uh, whatever the free legal aid costs. And this would just be for repeat offenders and it's an idea that's being looked at at the moment and the Attorney General is certainly giving it a serious um, consideration. Tom reckons everything about free legal aid in this country is simply wrong. He said before somebody gets free legal uh, aid he says the only people that should get it are people who are not working and who are relying solely on social welfare. For everybody else, all their bank accounts and whatever else they have should be checked to ensure that they're entitled to free legal aid. He says genuine people in this country have to fill out so many forms for things like fuel allowance and other payments that are means tested. He says similar should be done for free legal aid. Now I'll have to check Tom but I would feel sure that free legal aid is means tested as well. I don't think somebody can rock up and just say oh judge I can't afford it you'll have to give me free legal aid. I'll check out how they do it but I'm assuming that there is some kind of of a means tested uh, payment. Now a Kanturk cafe owner who recovered from drug addiction that he describes as 10 years of hell is aiming to break the stigma that surrounds 
surrounds talking about addiction with his very own blend of coffee that he's very cleverly named the Recovery Blend. Ahead of the official launch of this new blend, Jack Tobin of the Catch-Up Cafe uh, in Canturk joins me. Good morning to you, Jack. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well. And we'll talk about your launch. And firstly, congratulations on launching this new blend later on. And we'll talk about it in a moment. But I suppose I need to take you back to talk about your own uh, story. When did you first start to take drugs? And what was it initially like for you? Um, I suppose it was great at the start. I was about 13 years of age um, when I first started smoking cannabis. A friend of mine had a bit. We said, oh, yeah, we'll try it, you know. One of them things when you're a child, you just kind of go with the flow or whatever and else is doing. I suppose, like, I portray, I try and tell everyone it was fantastic at the start. The first year, two years were great. It was fun. I suppose the hiding it from my parents, the adrenaline. And I suppose then it got a grip of me. Um, I started experimenting with other drugs, um, harder drugs, and it just progressed throughout the years, I suppose. And I suppose it just turned into a nightmare. And obviously it would have affected every aspect of your life. I'm, I'm assuming your education suffered. Um, it did. It would have. My only luck was with my education. I was in the Cork Life Centre in Cork. Um, I suppose they were very understanding towards my addiction and stuff. They worked with me. They got my leave in certain junior cert, thankfully. Um, they were constantly trying to help me out, figure out ways to keep me in. Um, I suppose that's where... The cafe, me cooking and stuff came from would have been school because I wouldn't have been able to sit in class but still I would like to have been hands on and that's when they put me into into the kitchen in school with the chef and I suppose that's where my passion for cooking started and where the cafe came from. And and during all of that time at the Cork Life Centre, would you would you still have been an active addict? Yes, I would have, yeah. My goodness. And you describe it as ten years of hell. I mean, how bad did it get? Um I suppose, mental health-wise, my mental health completely deteriorated. I suppose it went from socially using parties to in my room on my own for days without sleep, using on my own, family walking away, friends walking away. Financially, it ruined me, my parents even. Um, My health, puking, blood, constant nosebleeds, everything. Very hard for your family to watch that, Jack. well, yeah, I suppose when you um, when you get clean, you only realise that addiction isn't just a person that's using, I suppose. It's everyone around you suffers. I suppose they're watching you deteriorate. You're killing yourself slowly and they have to watch that and there's nothing they can do until you're ready to, to help yourself. So what was that moment where you decided, I, I can't do this anymore? Um, I suppose it had just been, I suppose like every day for the last year before I got clean, I was telling myself, I was telling my parents, I was like a broken record. This is it. I'm clean now. This is it. I'm getting clean. And I suppose my mental health is deteriorated so much. I said to my parents, I'm going out now. This is the last time I'm going out in a, a mad session. And I suppose when I come back, that's it. Uh, they said, Look, you know, we've heard it all before. And I did. I came home after that session and I broke down crying in their arms. I knew there was only, there was three possible outcomes to my life at that point. It was an overdose, suicide or get clean. God, that's that's a hard thing to to face at 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 a young age. Oh, definitely. I suppose um, that's why that's the whole point of this and me speaking up. I suppose if I can stop one young person to go through, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Everyone thinks it's a great lifestyle, you're out partying, but it's it's not till you're on on your own. You're so paranoid. Um, 
anxious, you don't want to leave your house, you're using on your own, you're days without sleep, you're not eating. I suppose every every young person that starts using drugs, it's great at the start. But I want to bring awareness to where it does lead to. But you, yeah, and you can slip down that road very quickly. Very easily. I suppose the first two years I was just a daily cannabis user from the age of 13. And then it just progressed from there, I suppose, trying benzos, uh, prescription painkillers, cocaine. And I, I ended up on crack cocaine the last kind of six months um, of my addiction. Well, I, I, I still, at 13, um, smoking cannabis. And, and you reckon it was like everybody was doing it, you weren't an outlier? Oh, definitely not, no. I suppose the group of friends, I suppose, when one done it, I suppose it was like a domino effect when you're when you're hanging around with everyone. Oh, sure, that's grand. Everyone's doing it. You know, I'll try that. And I suppose then it just progresses on. I suppose when you start buying cannabis, it opens up a whole new world of other drugs to you. Um, you're going to a dealer that doesn't just sell cannabis. They have other things, and oh, I'll try that. And then you try that. It's not as bad as you think. And I suppose it just progresses. It gets worse and worse because you try harder and harder drugs thinking every time, oh, that's not that bad, that's not that bad, and you just keep trying and trying, I suppose. And then you're going for the, for the bigger buzz and you're not getting the same buzz out of it, so you have to take more and more and, uh, and more. It's a, it is a, a real uh, slippery slope. And, and I know we've often discussed it here in the programme, Jack. It's the, it's the easy availability of drugs. Oh, 100%. I suppose I'm from Cove originally and my parents would have moved down here to Canter, um many years ago to get me away from Cove thinking that I suppose rural Ireland, there'll be no drugs, this will try and sort them out and stuff. But it's already re- readily available, even in Canturk, even Newmarket, rural Ireland. It's like, it's like ordering a takeaway, you pick up the phone and it's at your door in 10 minutes. Yeah, they say there isn't, a, you know, at one stage it used to be something that only happened in cities and in larger urban uh, towns. But they say every village, no matter where you are in this country, if you want to access drugs, as you say, simple as picking up a phone and it'll be delivered to your door. Now, on the positive, you've, you you managed to get clean. Did you, you went into rehab, I'm assuming, did you? I did. I was in Fellowship House in Cork. Um, Don O'Leary from the Life Centre years after I left, I suppose, when I had my breakdown to my parents. I contacted Don and said, where do I go? What do I do? I suppose I didn't know. And he put me in contact with the right people and I ended up in Fellowship House. Um, I did a 90-day program there. Uh, and then I suppose I came out and I was trying to find myself, rebuild myself, figure out life. I had missed so much of my childhood and stuff, I suppose, due to addiction. Um, I suppose even trying to live with emotions. When I was using, if I was happy, I was using. If I was sad, I was using. I suppose it was just trying to live a normal life. And to learn how to live that normal life. And then, you, this is where you've got an amazing family and fantastic parents. They stepped in to help you out with this cafe. Tell me how the cafe came about. It's only April it's been open. Yeah, we. Well, I suppose we would have eaten here um, on a regular basis, come for coffee, I suppose. We just had a bit of grub outside and stuff sitting in. Um, and, and the owner, one day I would have got a friend doing it. I'm, I'm selling off. I'm going back to Turkey. My my partner's family after the earthquake. I said, joking, I said, let me know. And I suppose she came to me and said, look, I am selling, are you interested? You said, and I put the proposal to my parents and look, I was in no financial position to, to fund it. I had bank loans, credit unions, I owed, I owed massive amounts of money everywhere. Um, so my parents believed in me enough um, that they were able to fund it. They, they, they believed in me enough, I suppose, even after 10 years of putting them through hell out of my, myself they were able to, to jump on board. 
my mother also left her job as a teacher, as a home ec teacher, to come in with me and make this work. Um, I, I, I'll forever be grateful to them. Like, I, I, I still don't understand how they stuck by me. I suppose that's, that's just... Jack, that's what parents do. And please, yeah. God, one day you might be a parent to yourself and, and you'll understand it. So the cafe opened in uh, April. And, and and it's very much, um, it's a safe place for everyone, but especially for people, I believe, in recovery or perhaps even still in active addiction. Um, look, my story, what I, what, what I wanted for the cafe was to be an open space for the community, an open hub. I don't want it to, like, my story is recovery, my story is addiction, and that's what I, I push, I suppose, to destigmatise it, to be able to talk about it. But anytime you come into our cafe, we want to be able to talk about mental health, we want someone to say, geez, I'm very lonely sit down and have a coffee. It's not just addiction. It's not just recovery. We want to destigmatize conversations that aren't talked about in Ireland, I suppose, like all aspects of life. We want any conversation to be open. We don't want no judgment from anyone. We just want it to be a safe place to come in. If you're on your own at home and you're living on your own, to be able to come down and have a coffee and talk about anything that's in your head and not good. You know, that kind of way. But of course, well yes, because my background is addiction and recovery, that's what I'd like. That's where we based it off. It's just, it's a fantastic idea. It really is a fantastic idea. And then you come to tonight and the launch of this new recovery blend. How did that come about? Um, We were looking at so many different coffee brands when we came in first. We needed to find, I suppose, one that suited us, what we liked. Um, We weren't just going to sell any coffee just for the sake of making money. We wanted one that people would enjoy. Um, I suppose we went to so many different tastings and it turned around at Soulman Cork. When we went down to them, they came to us and said, "Look, why don't you why don't you brand your own your story? Let's make use of it." Um, and that's where that's where the recovery blend taking one day at a time came from. Our goal with it, I suppose, and my goal is, if it's on a counter in someone's house and someone else walks in and says, "Oh, what's that?" It opens a conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's that. It's clever. It, it opens it opens up the conversation. You know, conversations that people are afraid to have. Um. I, I just want it to be a talking point to be someone to be able to go oh jeez actually I'm having a bad day maybe I do need to take it one day at a time And how has the cafe been doing since you opened in April? You know it has its ups and downs like all business there's good times of the month there's bad times you know but it's been brilliant the overall I suppose the community and everything we got flooded in September um, with the bad rain and stuff and yeah. the community came together like we must have had 20 people there that night pulling equipment out, trying to mop floors, helping us. We have a regular customer base that we now call friends, not only customers. Um, it's just been, it's been brilliant, to be honest. It sounds like it's a great win for, for you and, and for your mum, but I think for the entire community. You know, every, every town should have a cafe like that where you feel you can just go in on your own if you just need to chat or you just need a little bit of company. And that's it. We're open to any topic of discussion that when people in the morning, you'd never know what the conversation is. TV shows, what was on the news last night, mental health. You, like, we're just, you never know. Like, there's oftentimes we'll sit down with customers if we're quiet in the morning and have our breakfast with them and a discussion will start or a conversation or, you know, it's just, it's re- we want this to be a community hub, a safe place for anyone to talk about anything where there's no judgment. No, nothing. It's just a safe place for everyone. Well, so Not just recovery. It, it, so, it sounds like you've nailed it. So your recovery uh, blend, I'm assuming, you, you, if you go in for a cup of coffee, that's the blend that you will be served. But you'll yep. also be selling the ground coffee is, is, is we have ground, and the beans. We have ground and beans, yeah. 
Um, we have the 250 gram bag, retail bag, we have keto bags, we have we have a mixed array, and hopefully we will make it to an online store um, for people that want to purchase it wider, I suppose, and make it more known online as well then to get the word around of the whole situation that we want to portray. And you're having a launch tonight in the cafe at 7? Yes, 7 o'clock this evening. Everyone is welcome to come, try the coffee, mingle, chat, and meet new people in the community, I suppose. Okay, and that's open to, as you say, existing customers, I, I, I assume, as well as uh, as everybody else. Oh, definitely. New customers, people that didn't even know about us till they've heard this today. Anyone that would like to come this evening is more than welcome to come, try the coffee, mingle. Okay, and an obvious question that I should have asked you. Somebody said, where in Canturk is the Catch-Up Cafe? It, it's on Percival Street in Canturk. Percival Street. Okay, and there's one final question that I have to ask you. When I saw um, your press release that you sent, sent in to us, why, your nickname is Kit Kat? Uh, that's the running joke because I suppose my addiction, I suppose I'm still dealing with it on a daily basis. I'm only two and a half years clean. So sometimes I have to walk out and go, right, I need a break. I need to take five minutes and go out my own. So one of my staff members, Danielle, um, has nicknamed me Kit Kat because she goes, she, when I say I need a break, she goes, okay, Kit Kat. <laughs> yeah. I thought, thought perhaps you just were fond of the chocolate bar, but you need to take a break. Okay, we'll let you get back to work, uh, Kit Kat, rather than take the break. <laughs> but listen, uh, good luck with the launch uh, tonight. It's a fantastic initiative and we wish you nothing but luck uh, into the future. And thanks a million for taking time out to talk to us today. Thanks very much, Patricia. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. 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 What a lovely young man, proving that you can turn your life around uh, when you fall down that awful path of addiction that is Jack Tobin of the Catch-Up Cafe in Canturk and their official launch of their recovery blend of your own Canturk tonight kicking off from 7 why not pop in some of your commentary coming in still getting in uh, commentary on the Ashleen uh, Murphy murder and uh, Joseph Pushka being found guilty of murdering Ashleen last year uh, Mary and Rathcoe I actually sent you an email last night with when everything was so upsetting but very much the right outcome for the Murphy family. Unfortunately, I had the wrong address. But what I wanted to say was I was in Mary Immaculata College two weeks ago today with my oldest grandchild, Mary, as she stood in the same stand that Ashlyn would have stood on just two years previously, qualifying as a teacher and looked forward to her whole life in front of her, but cut so short by this man. I had to contact my granddaughter yesterday evening just to say, I love you, darling. The Ashlyn Award, by the way, was given to one recipient that day in Limerick so her memory le- very much uh, lives on thank God for uh, ever yeah, and there's a number of awards uh, in her name and long may we never ever forget the name and the beautiful face of uh, Ashleen Murphy 0818 103 103 thank you for that Mary I think so many people were upset by Ashleen's um, death and continue to be and Eileen in Cork says Patricia life should mean life now, Eileen has a very personal story in that her sister was murdered by her boyfriend. He got a life sentence at the time. But guess what, said Eileen? He was out after 15 years. It's so unfair. And once they get life, they should never be re- released again. And Eileen says, you never get over it. You just learn to live with it. My heart goes out to Ashleen's family. May she rest in peace. Such a beautiful, beautiful young uh, woman. And someone else, when it comes to a life sentence, wants to go even further. This text 
Dexter says we need the death sentence. Criminals are released too early out on good behaviour. What a what a joke. By the way, I also agree. Why are murderers allowed free legal uh, aid? I am paying for their trial. It's crazy. But I, I suppose the Constitution will say that they are innocent until proven uh, guilty. And that's the reason that they are given free legal aid. But yes, I know. I accept that a lot of people get very annoyed about free legal aid and particularly for repeat offenders. Oh, wait, one eight. 103103. Now, here is one I'm very much interested to hear from others. Hi, Patricia. I am so, says the text, angry at those radio ads that have sounds of ringing phones or car sounds. I was just driving along happily listening to your show when suddenly an ad came on and there was a car horn beeping. I nearly went over the ditch looking behind to see who wanted to pass me or who was bipping the horn at me. So I did a quick check. Now, I don't know what particular ad uh, it is, but this listener reckons there's a few at the moment with distracting sounds. Or are other people noticing distracting sounds in ads? And I've just checked out what is the code of practice when it comes to making ads, particularly when it comes to the sound of cars. I found a code of practice that's in the UK, but I've checked and something similar is in place here in Ireland and ads must not include sounds likely to create a safety hazard, distracting or potentially alarming sound effect such as sirens, car horns, which our listener is mentioned, mentioning screeching tyres, vehicle collisions and the likes must be treated cautiously when you're making an ad. They may be dangerous to those listening, especially those who are listening while driving and in particular and this is something that that is uh, I checked with somebody who was once involved with the making of commercials they should avoid being featured at the start of an ad before listeners are clear about what they're actually listening to so I don't know the particular ad that this listener is highlighting was it at the very start or was it in the middle of it and you were just distracted and didn't realise it was uh, an ad but yeah and a phone ringing is another one that particularly if it's the same ringtone as your own phone, even though we're all being told when you're driving, you shouldn't be anywhere near going to pick up your phone. But anyway, I I welcome thoughts uh, from others. Is anybody else noticing distracting sounds in a number of uh, ads, particularly while you're driving? It's okay while you're at home in the kitchen listening to the radio. You're not going to be so uh, put off about a car horn uh, beeping. Uh, But certainly if you're driving, it can be a distraction. Your thoughts welcome to 0818 103 103 or you can text or WhatsApp to 0862103. 103. Martin in Formoy is wondering about the traffic lights at the square in Formoy. Especially, he says, the lights when you're going towards Cork City. Why are the lights so long on red and then so short on green? It's a total and utter nightmare, he said. If your third or fourth car in the line, because you'll get stuck again because it'll turn red by the time you get up to move on with your car. Also, uh, says Martin in Formoy, I actually think there are drivers in Formoy who do not know the rules of the road. They don't know how to drive correctly. As Martin in Formoy having a bit of a rant. And this is another one that's come into us that your thoughts are welcomed on. It is, it's a bit of a rant um, uh, as well and somebody's irked by this and says, Hi Patricia, without giving out my name or location please, I wonder could you put out a question on your show at some stage about my issue. Now it's not as serious as some of the awful things that are happening out there but it irks me all the same. How much routinely would a woman with fine straight hair expect to pay for a dry haircut? Now I usually get a dry cut and recently I had to take my daughter along and we both went went in to get dry cuts done. Straight across 
about an inch of hair taken off. Nothing fancy. Maximum time that the two of us were in the seat from start to finish was between 20 and 25 minutes in total. A scissors and a comb was used. We didn't even get a squirt of water to dampen down the hair. When I went to pay, it was €60 for the two, €30 a head. Is this now the standard price, says uh, this uh, listener. So, uh, and and obviously we're not saying location and I don't know where the hairdresser is or was or or what. To me, that sounds very expensive for a dry haircut. So I'm wondering, what is the standard charge for a dry haircut? And I absolutely accept that costs have gone up for hairdressers and indeed for a lot of services, their electricity costs, their heating costs, their insurance uh, costs, their VAT went up because they're in with the hospitality sector. But €30 Euro for a dry cut where you're just cutting the inch off the hair, as this texter said, nothing uh, fancy and especially a dry cut for a child as well, sounds rather expensive to me. Your thoughts are welcomed, please. 0818 103 103 or you can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. C103 Jobs. A full or a part-time HGV driver is wanted for Kelco Transport. Now, a full licence and you need to have up-to-date CPCs. You can email kelcroacc at gmail.com or you can phone 029-70296. Full or part-time cattle truck driver wanted, preferably over 25 and you need to have some livestock experience. Email to me livestock at gmail.com. A builder's labour is wanted to work in the Mitchellstown area. Now, own transport would be an advantage. Ring, text, or WhatsApp 086 And a caretaker is wanted to work one day per week at Ballyhouse National School. The position is subject to guard the vetting. The number to call is 022 27937. Or you can email. Bally Haas National School at gmail.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now on Wednesday of this week, Molly Martins and her father Tom were sent back to jail for a minimum of seven months for the manslaughter of Jason Corbett bringing an end, an eight-year nightmare for the Corbett family from Limerick. Ralph Regal of the Irish Independent joins me from North Carolina where he has attended every day of the court proceedings. Um, Good morning to you, Ralph. Good morning, Patricia. And I know it's very early where you are, so we appreciate you taking uh, our call. Now, I suppose, can you start by outlining what was the judge's reasoning behind uh, the sentences? Because a lot of people, certainly here at home, uh, feels it's rather lenient. Yeah, and I think the family feel it is as well. And I can't put it any better than Sarah Corbett did in her victim impact statement. Very emotional victim impact statements, both by her and by her brother, when she said, you know, my dad's life is worth more than a few years. And ultimately, uh, Tom and Molly Martins will serve, I think, just over four and a half years um, for taking this man's life in the circumstances in which they did so. In fairness to Judge David Hall, um, once the state, the prosecutors agreed, 
a plea bargain deal with Tom and Molly Martins. Um, he was limited in terms of what he could do. Essentially, the minimum sentence that could be applied was probation. I don't think that was ever going to be applied given the, 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 the extraordinary level of violence that Mr. Um, Corbett was subjected to on August the 2nd, 2015. And then the maximum sentence that could be applied was nine years. And again, I think that was very much never going to happen on the basis that there were a significant number of mitigating factors that were being argued by the defence teams. Now, both the defence teams for Tom and Molly argued for what's known as extraordinary mitigating circumstances. And the judge didn't go that far, but he did. He said legally he had to allow, he had to find for certain elements of mitigation, uh, such as the, the triggering events for what happened, um, how they were using a legitimate self-defense at the start, and then they simply went too far and it became excessive force. And it was also interesting in that he referred to the fact that in here in the United States, um, one element of mitigation is that if a person has served in the US Defense Forces, the, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, and they're honorably discharged, well, their contribution to the defense of the United States has to be taken into account in terms of sentence mitigation. And Judge Hall pointed out that um, Tom Martins had served for 30 years in the FBI. He had then served as a counterintelligence operative with the US Department of Energy. He held, At one time, he held the highest level of security clearance that it was possible to hold here in the United States. And the judge said that he considered that contribution to the defense of the United States to be exactly the same as someone would, who would have served in uniform. So he kind of went a middle road. He imposed a sentence that was, um, it, it would vary from basically um, uh, essentially 51 months up to just under um, six years. Uh, but the 51 months is the minimum term. And of course, Tom and Molly Martins have already served 44 months in custody on the basis of their conviction in August 2017 for the second degree murder of Mr. Corbett. So if all factors fall in their favour, they will both be released from custody in seven months' time when they reach the 51 But it is, is it possible because of what the judge said about, you know, the past life of, of Tom Martins, that Tom Martins would get out after the seven months? But is it possible that Molly Martins could stay in jail longer? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's possible that even Tom Martins, because you see, again, it, a lot of that will depend on what happens over the next seven months. So a lot of it, I think, is linked to there's multiple factors will be taken into account. Um, primarily, I mean, good behaviour in custody. Um, now, Tom Martins was a model prisoner all the way through his 44 months in custody. Um, there are a number of things that will be taken into account in his case. Firstly, his age. He's 73 years old. Second of all, the fact that his public service, his role in the FBI, whatever like that, and also general circumstances, his wife, Sharon, has been treated for cancer. And the court was told that because of her, her condition, she needs her husband at home. So on that basis, they're saying that it's certainly Jay Vanoy, who is the with Jones Bird. He was the lawyer for Tom Martins. He's adamant. He said Tom Martins will be released in seven months. Yes. OK, the victim impact statements by uh, Jason's children, Jack and Sarah. And, and by the way, for anyone who they're up online, if, if you haven't read them, they're well worth uh, reading. Uh, Ralph, what was it like to sit in the courtroom when both Jack and Sarah delivered their victim impact statements? 
Uh, extraordinary, if I was to use just one word, uh, Patricia, it was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I'm covering court cases really since the 1980s, and there are only a few that I could think of that would rank on this scale in terms of sheer emotion. Um, Jack spoke first. There was eight victim impact statements in total. Three of them were delivered in person. Uh, the first of them was by Tracy Corbett Lynch, of course, who was Jason's sister and who has really spearheaded the campaign for justice for her brother. Then it was Jack. Then it was Sarah. Jack was speaking for just a very short period of time when Molly Martin started to sob. Um, at one point, Jack had to pause because he, he had just said that Molly Martins had taught him to be a liar and his voice quavered. So he stopped and, and with incredible courage and dignity, composed himself and continued. When Sarah was delivering her victim impact statement, the tears were actually running down her face. She broke down several times. Um, it was an incredible um, speech. She had to pause, compose herself, continue. And when she finished, the, there were sobs echoing around the courtroom. At one point, the judge had to warn one member of the Martins family to either compose themselves or leave the courtroom. Uh, and again, it's very difficult listening to these things because you'd want to have a heart of stone not to be impacted by them. And I heard sobs starting direct. I was sitting two rows behind the Martins family on the left hand side of courtroom number six here in Lexington. And directly behind me, I heard sobs and I thought there were further members of the family. And when I turned around, cast a quick glance up from the notebook, it was actually an American journalist that had lost it and was starting to actually sob. Wow. Well, and you don't often see that uh, in, in, in a courtroom, uh, for sure. And it's important to point out, and I know both Jack and, and Sarah emphasised it, they wrote those victim impact statements themselves. This was coming from the heart. Oh, very much so. It was um, very much the, the language of the heart. And the two children both said several times that they wanted their truth to be hold or to be told in the court. Not only did they write their own victim impact statements, but the three assistant district attorneys, Alan Martin, Caitlin Jones and Marissa Parker, they had offered to deliver the victim impact statements on behalf of the two children. And they said, no, they wanted their voices heard in court. And I think an important part of that was we had heard the children's voices previously when the videotapes of the recordings at Dragonfly House and North Carolina Department of Social Services Agency, they conducted interviews with the two children four days after their father's death. The children had been in the custody, sole custody of Molly and her family for those four days. And the statements almost incredibly were taken just a couple of hours before the two children were supposed to go to their own father's memorial service. And of course, those statements the prosecution maintained were coached. Molly Martins had told the children what to say to try and mitigate the actions of herself and her father. And I think it was very important to Jack and Sarah that the court wasn't left with just those voices of the two children, that they heard the current voices of the two children. And the two children went to tremendous pains to say, this is the truth. We're not acting under duress. We're not acting under fear or anxiety. We're here because we want the truth about who our father was to be told. And really, that was the only opportunity in the last two weeks that the family had to defend Jason Corbett's name because really what the last two weeks was about was about the destruction of his good name and character in a bid by the Martins to mitigate their sentences.
How difficult was those la- the, the last uh, few weeks for for the entire family? I, I kept thinking about the children in particular to to hear their father's good character absolutely shredded in court. Yeah, yeah, it was very difficult. I mean, there was a couple of times when Sarah became visibly upset during some of the evidence, and she had to get up. Um, Tracy would get up, hold her hand. They would leave the court. They would compose themselves. I think on one particular occasion, the, the evidence was so horrific that they had to walk around the block just to kind of clear their heads. It has been very difficult for them to, to sit through. I mean, no family should have to sit and listen to, I mean, the type of, um, really, you can't describe it as anything else but character assassination. Yeah. And coming from, in particular, coming from Molly Martins, because so much of the evidence was based on what Molly Martins said. And of course, the reality is that, that she was effectively a compulsive liar. She lied about virtually everything. She lied about having given birth to Sarah. She lied about birth complications. She lied about being the editor of a magazine here in Ireland. She lied about being a foster parent so that she could actually get the job as nanny for Jack and Sarah two years after their mother had died. And most extraordinary of all, she lied about having a young sister called Grace who died of leukemia and took the lie so far that she told her college roommate, now she washed out of college here at Clemson, a very famous university in the South. She didn't even finish one semester in Clemson before she left. Uh, But she had told her college roommate in Clemson that she had this sister who died of leukemia and she had the photograph of a girl in a wooden uh, picture frame. The girl somehow felt there was something off about the story. And when Molly was absent one day, she just checked the photograph. And when she opened the photograph, the actual image of the young girl in it was a stock photo. So when you buy a photo frame, you it get comes it. with the picture. It comes with the picture. That's the person. Ne- she never had a sister called Grace. She never had a sister that, that could have died of cancer. And was all this because Molly Martins wanted children and in particular Jack and Sarah? Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't put it any better than Alan Martins. He said that Molly had a plan and Molly's plan was, and this was ever before she married Jason Corbett, her plan was that she would marry Jason Corbett. She would divorce him. She would manufacture a domestic incident, domestic violence incident, so that she would get emergency custody of him. And then in divorce proceedings, she would get full full custody of the two children. Um, Both sides in different fashions had said Molly was all about the kids. And of course, we, we, we now know from Jason's family, Jason was getting fed up of life in America and life living with this woman. Uh, he was preparing to take the children back to Ireland, wasn't he? Yeah, that, that the family have always maintained that this happened because Jason Corbett was, was increasingly concerned about his wife's bizarre behaviour, her mental health state. And that he was going to bring, he was coming home for a family birthday celebration. I think it was his father's birthday. He was going to bring the two kids with him, not Molly, and that he would return to the States, but leave the children in Ireland. And then he would divorce her and that everything would be wrapped up. And the prosecution made that point. The prosecution said Molly had a plan, but Molly was run. The clock was ticking. Molly was running out of time. She realized that her husband could take the two children who were not U.S. citizens out of her reach. And that's why she had to act. And it was the prosecution's case that she tried to manufacture an incident on the night where she would get hurt and that she would then be able to get emergency custody. But whatever happened, it went too far. And Mr. Corbett ended up with such horrific head injuries inflicted by a metal baseball bat and a concrete paving slab. 
that pathologist Dr. Craig Nelson couldn't even count the number of blows. Oh, yeah. And I know I'm conscious of the time of the morning and I know there may be young years listening to this and if there are, for mums and dads, take them away from the radio. But the injuries were so horrific that Mr. Corbett's blood was on the ceiling, on the walls, on the carpet. There was a clump of his scalp taken up off the carpet. And when his body was put on the table in preparation for the post-mortem examination, pieces of his skull were falling out onto the table. My God. My God. Uh, by the way, how did um, they react, Tom and Molly Martins? To, to Because they were hoping they would walk free. How did they react to being sent back to jail? Um, they certainly were hoping to walk free. And if I'm honest, Patricia, I think virtually every journalist in court expected them to walk free. But Judge David Hall is a very experienced judge. He was one of the most highly experienced prosecutors here in North Carolina. And he read the evidence very differently, I think, to everybody else. Um, Tom Martins was stoic. Uh, he stood up. He showed no emotion. And the only thing he did was that the judge in meet when he imposed the minimum 51 month prison sentence, Tom Martins turned around, he took off his jacket, he handed his jacket to his son and to his wife. And numerous members of his family were in, were in tears. A couple were sobbing and he held his hands out so they could be handcuffed. Very different story from Molly. And during the children's victim impact statement, she was sobbing. At one point, she was so distressed, she was actually moaning in the court. You could hear her moaning. And then what she did was she leaned forward, she kept her hands at her side, and she placed her, her head face down on the wooden table and continued to sob. So she was actually still crying as she was handcuffed and immediately taken into custody. Okay, and then you've got a, um, a, a kind of a story in today's paper that made me jump almost, that as the corporate family were leaving, a supporter of Molly Martin's went right into, was it Tracy's face screaming at her? That's right. Correct. Went up to her, attempt, screamed her name, attempted to confront her. Uh, Tracy's husband, Dave, and Jason Corbett's best friend, Paul Dillon, immediately. And I think they kind of half expected some type of incident because a lot of Molly's friends were very upset and very agitated. Um, certainly a lot of the Irish journalists were getting uh, looks um, from some of Molly's friends that weren't the most complimentary over the last two weeks. Uh, and one of them screamed Tracy's name, attempted to physically confront her. Um, Dave and Paul immediately went to protect Tracy. But there's a lot of police presence around this case. And one of the, the Davidson County uh, police officers who was acting as a bailiff grabbed this woman physically removed her from the area, took her outside the courthouse. Now, she wasn't arrested, but I think she was given a very stern warning about her behaviour and told to leave the area. OK, and the Corbett family are returning home. Is it today or tomorrow? Uh, it's over the next couple of days. I'm not yeah. exactly sure when. Yeah, Patricia I saw Sarah on, on um, Twitter last night yeah. and I think it's either today or uh, tomorrow. Yeah. They now have to try and just pick up the pieces and just try to get on with their lives. Yeah, very much so. And I think everybody in, in, in the United States and in Ireland wishes them well, because I think if any family deserves a break and deserves a bit of good fortune, they do. Uh, they're two great kids, um, Jack and Sarah. Uh, the one good thing that life has thrown at, at them is that they have a wonderful family and they couldn't have picked two better people to spend their lives with than Dave and Tracy Lynch. And it was lovely the way it was put in court that Tracy described that they now have a blended family. Yeah. She considers herself to be the mother of Jack and Sarah and her two sons, Dean and Adam, they consider themselves to be brothers to the two young children. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. I tell you, Jason will be uh, so proud of how those uh, children behaved uh, this week. And I have to say uh, to you, Ralph, well done on all of your reports since 
this hearing began. I mean, reading your articles every day, it, it felt like we were in the courtroom in North Carolina. It was just powerful reporting. You are a credit to your profession and you're in credit to us here at home. So thank you for that and thanks for taking time out you're to talk to us today. OK, good morning to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. And safe travels home. That is the wonderful Ralph uh, Regal of the Irish Independent joining us live from uh, North Carolina. And I should have asked him, I wonder, did he get Bruce Springsteen tickets? He's probably the biggest Bruce Springsteen fan that I know. And I was thinking of him when the tickets went on sale during the week for Cork. Hopefully somebody managed to get Ralph uh, a ticket. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Cork today on C103. And thank you to a number of people picking up and, and saying well done to um, us, us for having Ralph Regal on and to uh, Ralph Regal. He is, uh, he, the way the picture he painted of what happened in the Davison County uh, Courthouse in North Carolina was truly stunning. Yeah, and if you, anyone who's used to reading Ralph's pieces, what, what he's done for the eight days of, of the trial, I mean, I meant what I said when I said to him, I felt like I was sitting in the courtroom uh, with them and a lot of people having sympathy for the uh, Corbett uh, family and people questioning why the sentence was so short. Um, and it's, as Ralph explained, so just let me explain it again, the judge's hands really were tied when Tom and Molly Martins decided to go for a plea bargain on voluntary manslaughter. There's a limit on how much time a person can spend in jail for admitting to voluntary manslaughter and it ranges from four years and three months to six years and two months and it was because they did this plea bargain of voluntary manslaughter that the judge's hands were tied even though I think some people were hoping that he would have gone for the upper limit of six years and two months that at least they would have done. They've done little three years, three years and eight months they've done so far. They at least would have gone away for a little bit longer but it looks like it's going to be the lower range which means they will be out in June but a lot of people just wanting to wish the Corbett family all the uh, very best um, for their journey home and uh, for their life into the future, particularly the children. 0818 103 103 John Paul's taking your calls. Text WhatsApp available at 086 Ours to protect. Brought to you by C103, the IBI, and funded by the Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out ours to protect.ie for more info. This week on Ours to Protect, we hear about the current focus of joining the dots, a British embassy-led programme launched in Cork five years ago. The theme at the moment centres around the retrofitting of houses and businesses. Joining the dots promotes economic links and opportunities between regions of the UK and Ireland, bringing together strands of the UK's levelling up agenda and Ireland's national development plan. The initial report was launched in Cork in 2018 and it identified untapped opportunities to connect business, researchers and academia to promote UK-Irish economic growth. Since its launch, the programme has built cooperation between the regions by hosting a number of events. This includes an event in Cork last month focusing on building retrofitting. British Ambassador to Ireland Paul Johnston has been speaking to us in Cork as part of a visit to mark five years of Joining the Dots. Joining the Dots is something that we conceived um, about five years ago. It was uh, my predecessor and the Cork Chamber of Commerce and indeed Simon Coveney, who was tarnished at the time. And it was a difficult period in the British-Irish relationship. We were in the midst of the, the Brexit saga uh, with no clarity about how it would emerge. And I think the view was that whatever was happening in the Brexit 
process. There was a lot of untapped potential in the British-Irish business relationship, and the Chamber did a survey that found that um, the overwhelming majority of uh, respondents thought so. And so we conceived of this idea, which I think was a bit ahead of its time, that we should focus the evolution of the relationship on the relation between the, between the regions and between the big cities outside the capitals. Not to exclude the capitals, but just to say that the relationship is a lot more than just London-Dublin or the southeast of England and the Dublin region. And so symbolically, but also practically, we launched it in Cork. But since, we've taken it around Ireland and around much of the UK. But we thought it was right to sort of circle back to Cork for the fifth anniversary, partly to look at a really important current theme, which is retrofitting of houses and of businesses for, um, for climate change purposes, um, but also to celebrate the fact that we're appointing a new honorary consul here in Cork. And that's really a sort of signal of how we want to take this relationship on to new heights in the next five years and beyond, uh, looking at some of the big opportunities, whether that's in renewable energy, sustainable construction, um, food and drink, hospitality. And I had a great session this morning with the Chamber of Commerce uh, looking at various of the possibilities that we can take forward together. So it's both looking back at what we've achieved over the last five years here in Cork and around the country and looking forward to see how we can uh, evolve the relationship in the, in the five years to come. The initial report in 2018 was launched in partnership with Cork Chamber of Commerce. The findings of a survey that same year was part of the inspiration for joining the dots. Mr Johnston says Cork brings a lot to the programme. It was really exciting to be hearing about the big part that Cork and this this region, the South Coast, will play in the expansion of Ireland's journey towards some really demanding net zero targets in terms of your um, capacity for generating uh, renewable uh, energy from offshore wind in particular. So I think there's big opportunities there that you can, um, that, that Cork can bring where British businesses can get involved. I think we can offer a lot of learnings, a lot of experience from our own, you know, more, of a dec- more than a decade now of doing sort of offshore wind off the coast of the, the UK. But I think um, you can bring sort of markets and opportunities, but also great local businesses that could well be involved in um, you know, growing their business in the, in the UK. I think someone said that 70%, for 70% of Irish SMEs, and therefore that will be SMEs in Cork as well, the first stage of their export journey is usually exporting to the UK for reasons you can understand. So I hope we can continue to be a really reliable partner and a big market for your goods and services. Um, in the same way that we can be bringing excellent British companies into the supply chain. You've got obviously big urban regeneration and development here. You've got the whole sort of sea spatial energy area, the naval base. There's a lot that we can be doing together, I think. Cork native Catherine Fitzpatrick's been appointed honorary consul for the southwest of Ireland. Ms Fitzpatrick will play a key role in supporting the British Embassy's work to promote region-to-region engagement. If you want to find out more about joining the dots, check the show notes of this episode. Ours to Protect, brought to you by C103, the IBI, and funded by the Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out ours to protect.ie for more info. We've been asked to say congratulations to Glenville National School because they won the Ski in a Skull in Porky Cueve yesterday. And somebody's been on to say well done to everyone involved. So I imagine much celebration going on in Glenville National School today. 0818 103 103. Now some of your calls and comments coming in just on the Tom and Molly Martins case. And uh, I spoke at length with uh, Ralph Regal who's been over, who was in North Carolina and he's been uh, covering the sentencing case for... 
think it was eight days in total uh, they were in, in court. Uh, one caller is making the point that Molly Martins could not have had time to coach the children eight years ago after Jason's murder as she would have been in custody following Jason's murder. But you see, she wasn't in custody following uh, Jason's murder. What happened on that night was that her hus- her dad rang the police and said it was self-defence. So the police arrived. They there was photographs taken they were taken in just to talk about what had happened and they gave their side of the story saying that Molly had been attacked by Jason and the father then ran ran to um her aid so they would have been released then they weren't charged with anything because the police at that stage thought they were dealing with a self-defence case it was only when the autopsy came back and they realised the amount of injuries that Jason had suffered that the police started to look at it in a very different light so literally from the moment Jason was murdered Jack and Sarah remained in the custody of Molly Martins and uh, her family and remember it took Tracy Corbett that's Jason's brother who Jack and Sarah now have lived with uh, since and her husband, uh, Dave. It took the Corbett family three weeks. They had this legal battle over in the States in order to get the custody of Jack and Sarah, who were only 10 and 8 at the time. And they had a, a real struggle to win back custody of the children. So they did manage to get them home. And even at that stage, three weeks after the death of Jason, when they got Jason's body back to Ireland to have him buried with his first wife, uh, Mags. And at that stage... Molly Martins and her father, uh, Tom, were just persons of interest in the investigation of Jason Corbett's death. So I don't know when uh, they were actually then charged with murder. So, yes, she did unfortunately have time. And both the children uh, have said that, that they were coached into exactly what they were and weren't to say in their statements. 0818103103. And then on the Ashleen Murphy murder trial, regular listener says, Hi, Patricia, I'm scratching my head here with the Ashleen Murphy. Murphy murder trial. How did the barristers of that killer have a straight face defending him and then they get paid for defending him for so many weeks when they knew his story was balderdashed. I'm scratching my head at the legal system and then the public paying for the killer's legal fees because he got free legal aid. Did they really think he was going to get away with it? You wonder at the legal system at times. Well, isn't that what defence lawyers and barristers have to do? And and I am sure there has been lots of cases where a lawyer or a barrister has gone in and in their heart of hearts they know the person that they are defending but we have a right to defence in, in this country so that's what has to be done but yeah it must be a hard thing to do if deep down you really don't believe that your client uh, is uh, innocent 0818103103 and then a number of people reacting to our listener who didn't want to uh, na- put out her name or her location and she was a little bit upset because she went with her daughter they both had a dry cut in a local hairdresser straight across cut about an inch taken off of each of their hair. Nothing fancy because she describes them both as having straight, fine hair. At maximum time, she reckoned that the two of them were in the chair was between 20 and 25 minutes. A scissors and a comb was used. Not even a squirt of water to dampen down the hair. And when she went to pay for herself and her daughter, she was charged 60 euro, 30 euro a head. And she was wondering, is that the standard price? Because she thought it was rather on the expensive side. Okay, some of your thoughts on that. Hi Patricia, 30 euro for a dry cut, I would have to agree, is very expensive, says 
is this texture. Dry cuts are normally between 15 and 20 euro. I always find hairdressers that are work from home uh, are normally about 30 euro, but that would be for a wash, cut and blow dry. 30 euro for a dry cut does sound expensive. Well, somebody else says, is that woman a miser or what? Complaining, 30 euro for a haircut at a hairdresser's. It's 20 euro for a man's cut in a barber's. The hairdresser's have has so many other additional costs. It's not like somebody working in a supermarket who gets 15 euro an hour they don't have the overhead costs. Somebody else says, Patricia, tell that woman that the next time she and her daughter need to get their hair cut, go into a local Turkish barber's. They'll always have female stylists and they're very reasonable and they only do dry cuts. And someone else says, Hi Patricia, I took my daughter lately for a dry trim, which sounds like what this woman's daughter had. I was only charged €5 for it, says uh, Mary. So I think the message to our listener is to shop around and maybe change hairdresser. 0818 103 103 and then others are reacting to the listener who got the fright of her life when and is very angry about it when she was driving along listening to the programme and an ad came on that had a car horn beeping and she nearly went over the ditch trying to work out was there a car trying to overtake her and then she realised it was an ad on the radio. Uh, Maura says yes I agree with that woman particularly when there's ads with a phone ringing if it is the same ringtone as my mine I'm often running around trying to find my phone says uh, Maura and Maureen says, I know exactly the ad that that woman is talking about. There are several car horn sa- sounds. It's advertising a zero finance brand and instead of a zero, they beep a car horn. horn. It's very annoying. Kind regards, says Maureen. I must keep a listen out uh, for that particular ad. Greta also agrees with the listener on the car horn ad. One day she ran out of the window thinking there was a car outside. Also whistling on ads drives Greta Absolutely nuts. 0818103103. John Paul taking your calls. And before we go to our community diary for today, there's a couple of things have come in by text and I don't know if they're included on the diary or not. So let's give a quick mention. Middleton GAA bingo is on this evening, half past seven. Great prizes on offer. That's from Marion. And dancing is on in Theo Park tonight with Dermot Lyons from nine. Uh, Theo Park Rambling House is on on Sunday afternoon from half two. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. The Barrymore Players Drama Group, they're presenting Stop It Nurse. It's by Sam Cree. It's on tonight and again on Sunday. Castellines Community Centre starting at 8 nightly. Tickets available at the door. Strand United AFC are having a reunion of past and present members. They're celebrating their 30th anniversary. Uh, tonight in the Strand Bar in Vickerstown, all are welcome. You please ask to support a fundraising table quiz. It's in aid of Drumahan Road Runners who are taking part in the 2024 London Marathon in aid of CUH. Table quiz will be held tonight, half past eight, Hickey's Bar in Drumahan. They're looking at tables of four, please, 40 euro. There will be a raffle and spot prizes. Castle Marcher GAA are celebrating their centenary next year and they'll hold a launch night tonight from half seven to half nine in Castle Magner School Hall. I invite you to come along and view the photos and the history of the club. Teas and treats will also be served. And bingo uh, continues tonight in Kildallery in the store at the Creamery Yard. Eyes down at eight and the jackpot €2,800. Uh, euro. 
Cork Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. This week, RTE's Nationwide have been running a series of programmes looking at the history, decline and destruction of the big houses in Ireland. Some 300 of these houses were burnt and destroyed during the Civil War and the War of Independence. But of course, the fate of many of them was sealed long before that as the uh, big houses and their families who lived in them saw their fortunes wane. Now, the final programme airs this evening at seven and it tells the story of the burning of Mitchellstown Castle. And who better to talk about that topic than local historian Bill Power, who, of course, recently wrote a book on the subject called Doomed Inheritance. Uh, Good afternoon to you, Bill. Good afternoon, Patricia. And you're very welcome. Now, of all of the almost 300 houses that were burned, is it fair to say that uh, Mitchellstown Castle was by far the biggest? It, it was. And the, the fact of the matter is, and it's been overlooked for donkey's years, Mitchellstown was the biggest house burned in the Civil War and War of Independence. The, the interior floor space of the house was just under an acre. So that gives you a, a sense of the scale of it. The highest tower in the building, which was the front tower, the White Knights Tower, that was 106 feet high, um, 32.2 metres, which is the same height as the steeple in St. George's Arts and Heritage Centre in Mitchellstown. So it was a huge building. And the burning really was to cover the fact that looting had happened. I mean, isn't it fair to say that? Yeah. Well, well look, the, the circumstances of the time were very complicated, but the important thing to remember is the British were gone. Ireland was now an independent free state. Um, and the, if you like, the last hurrah of the Republicans took place across North Cork, Mano, Mitchellstown, Fermoy. Um, there was there was no military reason for burning Mitchellstown Castle. There are, we know that, that Liam Lynch um, was trying to prevent the looting going on in the castle when it was happening. He was trying to have the goods returned, um, obviously failed in that. And part of the reason for burning it, and it was a big part of it, was to cover up the looting burn the castle and nobody would know anything different, which, of course, that was the story that played into the narrative for the last, you know, the bones of 100 years. But it's it's a narrative that, quite honestly, I've been working to change for people to understand how radically Mitchellstown changed by the loss of Mitchellstown Castle. Mm. And it was and, all because and the people own, were And the up, owners you know. at the time, I mean, they were asked uh, to leave and they were given assurances on leaving that no well, harm would be done to their home. Well, I mean, there's letters between members of the family which have survived. They're now in the public record office in Northern Ireland where, um, and I've, I've copies of, of these, obviously, where they, the IRA arrived um, in the evening. They asked them to leave. They said they wouldn't go until the morning. They spent the night gathering up what they could, locking it into a room in the castle. This included carpets and silver and paintings and furniture. And they put everything of value they thought are of most value into this room. They were not allowed to take anything out. They left the following morning. They had been assured that this would only happen, you know, the occupation would only happen for a few days. But the occupation lasted for six weeks. And at the end of this, um, the building was burned. Now, there are accounts. I mean, I grew up with them in Mitchellstown, um, Corpus Christi processions with silver at the end of certain streets. You hear the old people talking about, oh, so-and-so had that, that's out of the castle. You know, it really... And, and, and is, there, is there still a very divided view in the area over the burning of the castle? Well, of course there is, because people don't like confronting the truth. And the truth is the building was looted. It was then burned. Yes, there was a, a, a military, uh, sorry, a political motor for it. I mean, it, it was down to 
hatred of the of the English. Um, now the Kingstons were living in 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 Ireland for four hundred years. Um, so and they actually saw themselves as Irish. Um, it's ironic that these families. They were seen as English in Ireland and as Irish, Irish in England. England. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, as they, you they say, they, they, the chief of staff at the time, Liam Lynch, he did try to get some some of those valuables returned, but to well, no avail. Yeah, there, there is correspondence between uh, Lynch and uh, the commanding officer Mitchellstone, George Power, no relative of mine, where they're reporting to each other, and it's, it's a very limited correspondence. It has to be said, where Lynch is, is urging Power to go out and find these things was going to look very bad on the Republican cause if they were going to be remembered as looters. Now, we hear similar stories, for example, in, in Mallow, where William O'Brien met de Valera as it happens on that day and argued with de Valera that, you know, you had the support of the people until you started all this destruction. You're going to be remembered as bandits if you keep this up. Um, and, de, and de Valera acknowledged that. And I mean, there's, there's an account of that, yeah. um, which I've, I've worked on over the years, you know. So, they were they were aware that there was there was something wrong with this. Now Liam Lynch was responsible for burning several big houses, so it wasn't that it was new to him to do that. But there there wasn't, unlike the blowing up of the railway viaduct in Mallow or the burning of the two military barracks in Tramway, which happened the same day. Those had a military and you could argue a strategic purpose to them. But Bitchelstown Castle um, was was burned uh, by all accounts in the command of. A, a local Republican commander who boasted that for the rest of his life. And what was the loss, Bill, to the people of Mitchellstown the day that that castle was burned? Well, see, people forget that the estate provided employment, and it employed. Okay, it employed. Or sorry, it, it gave employment in the context of working on the farms, working on the domain, but also there were women in the town who did work for the castle, whether it was house cleaning, washing, laundry. The gardens, they were employed people um, because they, they were run as commercial gardens. They they were run to make profit out of them. Um, and I'm not going to pretend that the, the wages were high or anything like that, but they were wages. And when the when the castle then gets burned, you've lost the major employer in town. And it was the major employer at that point. Mitchell's town co-op later on becomes the major employer and has a huge positive impact on the town. But... It has to be remembered that when these estates, like Mitchellstown, when it's it's destroyed, um, you you have a consequence to the to the local economy. Throughout the 1920s, there's constant newspaper reports about unemployment in Mitchellstown, and believe it or not, the change in that was the the um, much more widely reported actually in the newspapers was um, that that Mitchellstown then by the, the early 30s. They were introducing um, electrification to the town. And you see newspapers reporting that it was employing men, erecting poles and laying wires that actually helped the unemployment situation in Mitchellstown. There was no reference to the creamery at that stage. But obviously the creamery by the 1930s became the big employer locally. Mm-hmm. You know, It's a very complex economic, political and social dynamic. It's not a simplified you know, it's not a simple black and white, they were all wrong, we were all right or anything like that. It's much more nuanced and much more complicated than that. But if that castle hadn't been burnt and was still there today, what hmm. role do you think it well, would play in the town? Well, twofold. Uh, first of all, it, let's say it had survived and it survived the economic circumstances of the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s it would now be the major tourism attraction in this part of the world, without question. Donrell Park, which is a magnificent success in the last decade, 
and that would be a shadow of what would be happening in Mitchellstown. We forget that Mitchellstown Castle also had a domain of 1,200 acres. This was woodland, parkland, artificial lakes, landscape gardens, and wall gardens, a third larger than Donrail Park itself. Donrail Park is about 800 acres. Mitchellstown was 1,240. But a point that was made in this series by Professor Dooley in the first episode was that land and land ownership played a big part in why they burned these places because they knew that the policy of whatever new government was going to be there, their policy was going to be to divide up these parks and locals were going to benefit from the land that was allocated. So instead of having one last land unit out there, which it was, the domain was divided up and all the infrastructure, the, as I said, the, the, the what 500 um, acres of trees cut down there in the 1940s, every approach road to Mitchellstown would have been a bit more like what you see going into Fota Park, where you where you had, you know, down at Fota, you have these fantastic trees inside the wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, the, that's the way Mitchellstown would have been, coming in from Mallow, coming in from Limerick. So would have been a major, environmentally... Well, it would have been a major tourist attraction. Oh, yes, without question. I, I, and I mean, if you look at how tourism is developing, where, take the, the huge success that Onrell Park is now. I mean, I, I mean it's, it's just a huge success. Mitchellstown would have been enjoying that for the last 20, 30 years. And, you know, there is absolutely no reason whatsoever why the co-op couldn't have, have operated alongside the domain. Because there was enough land, yeah. Of, of course. And yeah. I mean, you know, a forgotten fact of all this is that the owner of, of the castle and the family in general, but the owner of the castle at the time it was born, um, he was the biggest shareholder of the co-op. He was a staunch supporter of it. He believed the cooperative movement was the future for Irish farming. And he's he's... He believed this going back to the 1890s. So it wasn't that he was the newcomer to this when the co-op started in 1919. He supported it. And other members of the, of the family were also major shareholders in the co-op. They were paying for their shares and buying their shares when other people couldn't afford it. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, in my book, Doomed Inheritance, I've reproduced um, uh, the evidence that, that uh, this man, William Weber was his name, um, that uh, he had £100 in shares in the co-op. £100 in... Huge sum, yeah. Huge amount. I mean, I know my grandfather in in, um, 1921, he was a labourer, he was paid £52 a year. (laughs) So that was two years wages to a working man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so the programme is on tonight at uh, 7. When when was it filmed, by the way, Bill? (laughs) It was filmed, the the weather conditions will suit it nicely. It was filmed back in March. Was it? Oh, it was as early as that? Yeah, um, but they, they held back, from what I can understand, one of the reasons for holding back on it was that they were planning this series and, uh, you know, about the big houses. And what I hear is that, that um, they're achieving record viewership numbers. I, I've, been, I've been watching it this week. It's, it's fascinating. Mm. Well, Isn't... you know, can I just say this, um, Patricia? What people are finally coming to understand is these places are part of our heritage. They were built by the rents of Irish people. They were built by Irish labourers. They were major employers. Yes, the politics is not so simple. And I I totally accept that and and believe that. But the fact of the matter is, this was part of our heritage. And we're finally kind of coming to understand 
maybe it wasn't such a good thing to burn down all these desks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hindsight is a great, yeah. great thing. Oh, sure, and and your, your book, Doomed Heritons, still available, as they say, in all good bookshops? Still, uh, still available in all good bookshops. I'm going to plug Phillips and Mallow, a great outlet and the favourite in Mitchell. It's a great book. And isn't for my bookshop and all that. Yeah, it, it's, it's it is, it is a terrific book. And just while you have you on, because you did mention it, St. George's Arts and Heritage uh, Centre, you have a gig coming up tomorrow night, is it? We have, yeah, tomorrow night we have Andreas Destek and Shauna Mansell. And the following night then, um, unusually for us, we have two shows, one, one night after the other. We have the Bel Canto Choir on Sunday with the St. Cormans Cathedral Choir. Um, they're performing on Sunday as well. Very busy programme, uh, I have to say. No, we've never, ever been as busy as we have been. Um, and we have the Christmas market, of course, coming up the last weekend of the month as well okay. on a Saturday and Sunday so that'll be Okay, well get yeah, the that, info that's, in that's and we'll, give, we'll give it a mention for you Listen, uh, looking uh, forward to seeing it uh, tonight uh, Bill and thanks a million for taking time out to talk to us today Always a pleasure Thanks Patricia Good afternoon to you Bye bye That is uh, Bill Power author and historian from uh, Mitchellstown um, It's on Nationwide tonight at uh, 7.0818103103 And can I give a mention to an email that I had in on an event that's happening It's this weekend It's on uh, Sunday It's a Christmas craft fair and it is in aid of the Gertelassa Old uh, School which is out on the Sheep's Head uh, Peninsula and it's their first venture into a craft fair and what they've got they've got 10 local artisan stall holders they've got them all together and they're all going to uh, come in and sell their wares there's everything from wood to uh, water colour art there's Christmas decorations there's jewellery there's candles there's soaps and, and body butters and obviously it's a great way if you want to pick up a Christmas gift and I love the idea of getting a Christmas gift that, it, uh, that that at the same time is helping a local artisan producer. So if you are on the Sheep's Head Peninsula on Sunday, the Gertelassa Old School House, and they're there between 12 and 5pm. And obviously all funds raised are going to the upkeep and the ongoing renovations of the Old School House. Everybody's welcome. And that's happening on Sunday. And talking of arts and crafts, I just want to give a shout out and a big thank you to Margaret in uh, Donora, who sent me in a gorgeous little hand-knitted bag that she made especially with Marcia in mind and she has added on all little kind of tactile pieces to it. Obviously Marcia being blind, everything is based on touch and the effort and the work that she put into it, it really is stunning. So thank you. I just want to acknowledge that it arrived safe and sound and that Marcia will absolutely adore. So thank you for that. Let's talk movies with Mark Malone. Good afternoon to you, Mark. Hi, Patricia. And you watched two movies for us, The Royal Hotel and Pain Hustlers. We're going to take a quick promo from The Royal Hotel. Physically, it's not a very demanding job. The only thing that can be a little bothersome is the remoteness of the location. Will there be kangaroos? We're on vacation. We should be on a beach somewhere. We have sunshine and booze in a box. Let's put up with it for a few weeks, make some cash. It'll toughen us up. Right. Gold is for Carl Gold. Red is Redland. Honey's in his hand. You get him a beer. Why do you want to come all the way out here? It was the furthest away. It's a tip. <laughs> That's enough. Young man, go. Hey. We're leaving. We're out. Where are you going to go, eh? 
Russ is not for two days. I'm scared of everyone and everything in this place. Make what you can. Get on the bus and go. Now, judging by the music, this is kind of eerie and it's, what is it, Australia Outback? Yeah, very much in the, the Australian Outback, yeah. It's kind of a Canadian, kind of Australian kind of co-production. And um, as you say, it is exactly that. It's 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 the on the Outback where there's a lot of very rough men and very, very few women. So it's about these two um, Canadian backpackers uh, who are backpacking their way through Australia, like a lot of people do, and they're running out of money. And so somebody says, look, there's this um, bar. Well, it's called the Royal Hotel, but it's... It's anything but of a hotel. It's just basically a rough and ready kind of uh, bar out in the middle of nowhere. It's not really so much a hostel, no, but they are given a room uh, up uh, above the um, of the bar. So they are given this job and somebody points out, so, so beware, be very, very careful because you're going to a part of the country where there are very, very few women and you two are going to get a lot of attention. And so when they arrive, uh, they're driven in. One of the other, there's only two other women uh, in the uh, town. Uh, the bar owner um, is married to a very, very kind of stern, very stoic kind of um, um, Aboriginal lady and uh, there's also this very aggressive lesbian uh, in the bar who's very very funny indeed and who behaves just like the men do as well um, so when they do arrive the, the, the two previous women uh, who the, the two previous girls who are working in the bar whose jobs they're going to take and replace are two English girls who are just absolutely wild and crazy and they're drinking a lot and uh, they're, they're flashing to all the boys and everything and of course the two girls from Australia who are very very conservative are almost kind of disgusted by that behaviour and somebody points out, oh, trust me, you'll be like that in a couple of weeks' time. And they do find that. They do find, yes, they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's little or nothing to do. And uh, so they do find themselves drinking uh, quite a lot um, uh, because of that kind of situation. But also, as I mentioned, they are going to get a lot of attention from uh, these um, very, very rough individuals uh, in the pub who are who drink a lot and they drink too much and they fight. And the attention they get from the uh, you know the, 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 the clientele is, is not really warranted and not really acceptable. And uh, um, and so the film then kind of constantly, the film is, is very good at kind of building up the tension and building up the situation and building up the kind of uh, the, the, the breakdown and kind of relationships between men who are basically fighting for the attention of these two women. Most of the time, they have absolutely no interest in these men at all. Now, I knew nothing about this film when I went to see it because, uh, you know, for the last few weeks, all we've had is horror movies in the cinema. Mm. And, you know, I'm not going to watch Saw 10. I'm not. I'm just It's not really my thing. So I saw this film and I thought I'd go along to see it. Um, and judging by the first hour, I really really thought that it was going to be kind of a, almost a horror movie and in fact it has been described as a horror movie but it's, any, it's anything but it's because not. Because the music certainly listening to the music on the trailers I thought it was, oh no, this is going to be one of these horror things somebody jumping out you know inside in the woods or something but it's not. Yeah, it, well like a lot of films uh, most films I seem to review these days it is based on a true story it's based oh. on a documentary a film called uh, Hotel Coolgardi uh, which was released back in uh, 2016 I think and to be fair to the director here who's um, an Australian woman by the name of Kitty Green she's also uh, written the script screenplay here. I think what she decided she could have gone down the road of horror. She could have very much have gone down the road of the kind of a, a revenge movie, but she didn't. She decided to stick to the story. So basically not a great deal happens and um, and that's the thing. But I, I actually respect it for that because basically it's about them and their, the breakdown of the relationship between them and their men. As you heard at one stage in the trailer, they want out, but they can't get out because they can't do anything about it and uh, and the behaviour of some and of the men. And they're just fighting off the advances of these men. Exactly, yeah. Oh. Exactly. 
exactly. And like, you know, there is a, there is a response from them. There is a, a violent response from them. But I wouldn't necessarily call it, you know, horror-like or even kind of thriller-like. It's just basically a human drama about these two women in a very, very difficult situation out in the middle of nowhere and how they respond to it. It stars Julia Garner. Now, I don't know, did you watch Ozark? I think you did, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, Julia yeah. Garner is, yeah. uh, is, is the star of this film. And she is, once again, extraordinary. I mean, if you remember her in Ozark, she was absolutely wonderful. And she's terrific here. Jessica Henwick plays uh, her friend. Hugo Weaving, great to see him, uh, the guy from Matrix. Uh, he plays the, the, the bar owner, Billy, who's also a drunk, of course, as well. How um, Australian men kind of respond to them being portrayed this way, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, but they don't seem to have... I did kind of do some research and to see if anybody complained about it. Uh, they obviously didn't. Uh, as I said, the director and writer here is an Australian woman. So she's obviously had some experience of these kind of uh, individuals uh, who are very, very rough and ready. So look, I'll still recommend it. It's not a really horror movie. There's not a really a great big huge kind of ending, um, you know, to excite everybody. Um, it just kind of, it just tells the story of what it is and, uh, and the difficulty of these two women. And I was entertained by it, but I was expecting all the time, I was waiting for that last Something half hour to, happen, to really kick off, but it doesn't. But that doesn't mean to say I won't recommend it. I will because all of the performances are extraordinary. Mark it out of 10? I'll give it 8. 8 out of 10, okay, and that is called The Royal Hotel. Now, your second movie is Pain Hustlers. What do we have here? Yeah, this is about uh, Big Pharma in the States. Now, again, oh. it's based on a true story and we've had a lot of these movies. Oxycontin the, and all that. All of that yeah. kind of stuff. Fentanyl and the dangers of fentanyl. And uh, this is another one of these uh, films. And I think uh, probably the reason why it hasn't been really, really well received is because of that. Because everything we've seen on screen here, we've seen before. And there's kind of very little that's uh, kind of original original uh, in the film. We meet Emily Blunt. Uh, she is um, a single mother. Love Emily Blunt. And she's finding it difficult to survive. She finds herself um, as an exotic dancer, for example, uh, in a nightclub. And there she meets Chris Evans, a drunken Chris Evans, who basically tells her that uh, she could make a huge amount of money by coming into the pharma business, which is the business that he is in. Uh, So she takes him up on his word, although he doesn't expect it, because the next day she knocks at the door and she goes, I want to work for you and I want to make money. Uh, But it turns out that the company is having very, very great difficulty because they're a a drug-selling company and they're trying to, to sell this particular drug, but nobody wants to touch it because of the, uh, the side effects uh, of it but that doesn't matter to any of these people because all they care about is money um, and she wants to make money because she needs money fast and quick and so but the problem is is that because doc- doctors won't uh, put their name to this drug because they know of the, si- the side effects the, 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 the first kind of hour of the film is about their desperate attempt to try and get all they need is one doctor all they need is one doctor to kind of to put his name on it and so there's a very very good sequence where she, and she and Emily Blunt uh, who's based on a, a true woman, is a very, very clever woman. And so she um, does this very clever thing where she hangs around the waiting rooms of the, the particular doctor that they are uh, targeting. And at one stage, she hears this man talking about his life and how his life is ruined through pain and he can't do anything um, um, about it. And the drugs they're giving him don't work. So she deliberately talks to the doctor in front of him saying this drug could help this man and of course this man once he hears this thinking give it to well, me give it, give to, it me. to me give it to me yeah. so and um, and so that that that's the very very start of it the, the, the drug gets signed off by that doctor and then this small tiny a little kind of uh, pharma company becomes huge and one of the biggest companies in the world and makes huge amounts of money for for everybody 
Then, of course, the reality of the drug and then the side effects come in. Um, there is fentanyl in this um, drug okay. and we know what that's done to, you know, certain parts of uh, American society. Uh, of course, it could very, very well happen here. It's a, yeah. you know, uh, and there's a good chance it could happen here. And then, of course, the feds uh, become interested in the whole story. It's an extraordinary story, I suppose. It's an extraordinary story of uh, the highs and lows of this whole industry, the dangers of the, the industry, and um, and it's very, very well done. I must say it's directed by David Yates, who directed the last few um, Harry Potter movies. You know, a, a good director. Um, this is very different to those because he always seemed to be kind of a, a director who is almost kind of on the bland side. But uh, here, you know, the, the, the soundtrack is very good. It's very flashy. But the whole time you're thinking it's just, it's not, just not quite working for me because I think that the characters weren't really written that well, especially Chris Evans, who when you first meet him you think is going to be this kind of big, big character in the film. And he kind of – they don't write him particularly well He's and he just basically kind of wimps along uh, in the film. Emily Blunt is very good, although her American accent is slightly dodgy. Mm, okay. uh, but uh, apart from that, uh, it's flashy and it looks good and um, it's very long though. And uh, But I still enjoyed it. It's still interesting. Uh, but I think it does suffer from the fact that we've seen all this before. OK, Mark, it out of 10? I'll give it six. Six, that's six out of ten and that is called Pain Hustlers. Thank you for that, Mark. Have a lovely week and we'll chat again to Mark next uh, Friday. That's Mark Malone, our movie a reviewer. Not going to have time to bring uh, Sandra on, uh, John Paul, but what I'll do instead, uh, just we'll give a shout out for Sandra. Uh, they are. It's a group down in Killa. They're looking for people to harvest their beetroot. They've made several attempts and they've failed. They've an acre of beetroot that they must get out of the ground ASAP as one night's frost will destroy it. And they need it because they cook, they make it into chips and they want it ready in the next few weeks for, it's made into crisps and they need it ready for, you know, the Christmas fairs and uh, the shows. Now, Sandra says that it's never happened to the company uh, before, but obviously there's been a lot of wet weather and they haven't been able to travel on the land. So they're looking for help to pick 14 beds of beetroot in East Cork by hand. Ideally, if they can get as many people as possible willing to give up a day, they'll be able to save the uh, beetroot. They're starting tomorrow, Saturday at 10am and if they can't get it all out, they'll be back again uh, next uh, week. So if anybody would like to help out, it's in the Killer area of East Cork. Can you text Sandra on 87 if anyone can help out with this little company as they are trying to harvest their beetroot and they have to go back to the old-fashioned ways of doing it by hand and there's already uh, a frost forecast for some areas tonight and they need to get it out of the ground. So please help if you can. Okay, that's where I leave you for today and indeed for this week. My thanks to John Paul McNamara. Uh, for producing the programme. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon and we'll be back with you on Monday morning at 10 on to the Patricia Messenger. Very good afternoon. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie.